said on Sunday, a podcast by Killable Anglican where we talk about what was said on Sunday or even what we didn't have time to say on Sunday. We are passionate about being deep in the Word of God and doing life together in community. So thanks for letting us into your week as we learn more about Jesus together. Here's today's episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Set on Sunday. My name's Beck, and I'm hosting the podcast today. And joining me is Andrew. Hi, Andrew. Hey, Beck. How you doing? I'm good, thank you. Now, we were talking just before about the storm that happened yesterday. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, what was your experience of the storm yesterday? Well, I was here with the staff team when it hit, and we uh, we had we had a literal flash flood in the building at church. So okay. it was pretty wild. Um, the, the green room and the white room, some of our kids' spaces, we were there as the water came in under the door and then into those rooms. And then we were battle stations with the squeegees and the, oh the wet vacs for a few hours. So, you know, it was a good team bonding experience. It was, mm-hmm, it was, mm-hmm. it was, it was quite exciting. Yeah. Where, where were you when the storm hit? Um, I was most of the time at home, but then I got SOS from my daughter who'd finished school early. She's in year 12 and mm-hmm. seems to hardly ever be at school actually. Sounds like year 12. And so I went and picked her up. And then um, got home just before the groceries were delivered. It was a bit chaotic, yeah. but it doesn't sound quite as chaotic yeah, as yeah, your yeah. experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was exciting, but not as exciting as the questions on the podcast are going to oh, be. Oh, yeah, nice segue. Yeah. Well, let's get down to it then. <laughs> um, what did you talk about on Sunday? Um, we were in the back half of Matthew chapter 8, uh, and we saw another three kind of episodes. In the first one, there were two examples of inadequate discipleship, people coming to Jesus, saying they want to follow but their heart's not really being in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we had two more displays of Jesus's power, uh, incredible displays of power, one where he calms a storm and one where he casts out demons. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw that he he had power over those things, proving he has the authority as king to, to do those things. Mm, very cool. All right, the first question we had was actually someone who's been poking around the other gospels mm. um, and they've found in Luke 8, um, where there's a bit of a difference. So the question is just wondering about why the passage differs from Luke 8 in which there is one demon-possessed man known as Legion. Why does Matthew say there are two men, not one? Yeah, good pickup. Good pickup noticing this. Um, also in Mark, this same story uh, has just one demon-possessed man. Mm. Um yeah, I, I thought about addressing this in my sermon, but it was one of those bits that ended up on the cutting room floor, which we're thankful for because, let's be honest, it was a longer sermon with, <laughs> with plenty in it as it was. So um, thanks for giving me the uh, opportunity to pick this up off the floor in my study. Um, the first thing to say is whenever we have minor discrepancies between the Gospels, um, that's not unusual. In fact, it's what we ought to expect in many ways. Uh, from an historical perspective, that adds trustworthiness to these accounts. When we have those slight differences, if we had four identical gospels, of course, we would actually just have one gospel and three copies of that gospel. True. Um, when there are apparent discrepancies, what do we do? There's two options at least. Uh, one is that it could be that stories look like they are describing the same event, but it's actually two separate events. Mm-hmm. An example of that, I think, is the cleansing of the temple where uh, at the start of John's gospel, Jesus cleanses the temple, uh, and at the end of the other gospels, Jesus cleanses the temple. And I think it's entirely likely and possible that Jesus did it at the start of his ministry and at the end of his ministry. Mm-hmm. Um, another option is that they are describing the same event but just telling the story differently. 
That doesn't mean that one of them got the story right and one of them made some mistakes. Mm. They're just highlighting different facts. And most of uh, the commentators who talk about this particular incident think that Mark has chosen to focus on that one particular man, whereas Matthew mentions the fact that there, there was actually more than one. There were two. Um, Mark's account is much longer. Mm. Mark chapter 5 has uh, gives m- many more verses to this than Matthew or Luke do. He goes into greater detail, more of the drama of the dialogue that mm. takes place. Matthew has chosen, as he's arranged these series of miracles, to uh, give us a briefer summary of what happened there uh, in the Gadarene region. Um, and he happens to add a detail for us that there was actually more than one man. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I actually went and counted the verses in Mark that yeah, right. describe this and it's 20 verses yeah, 20 compared verses. to Matthew yeah. 7 verses yeah. and Luke's 13 verses. So they're obviously really shining the spotlight on that one man mm-hmm. and his response as well mm-hmm. because Matthew mm-hmm. doesn't really talk about the man's response. Yeah. Um, so for them the man's response was important to what they were trying to communicate in this in this um, story that they're telling, the um, account that they're they're giving us. Um, whereas Matthew's more focused on the fact that Jesus had power over the demons, less yeah. on the man himself or the men. Um, yeah. So one thing that I read on this um, sort of said that um, often people will tell stories in a different way um, to, to leave out details that might kind of just interrupt their flow hmm. of the story. And it's not that they're lying or getting exactly. it wrong like you said. It's just highlighting something different. Hmm. Um, I, on the other hand, whenever I'm telling a story tend to include every detail, <laughs> but that's just me. That's not the gospel writers. <laughs> um, all right. Um, the next questions we have are kind of um, about faith and divine action. The first question we have is actually from last week um, where you talked about when the leper came to Jesus for healing. So the question is, if the leper who came to Jesus already knew who he was and already had faith, we see his faith in him saying, if you are willing, instead of are you able, does that mean he was already saved before he was healed? Hmm. When we place our faith or our trust or our belief in something or someone, uh, we're trusting them to do something or to be something. So even when I say it in the most general way possible, like I trust you to my wife, um, what I mean is uh, I trust you to make the right decision in whatever we've been discussing, or I trust that you have my best interests at heart, or I trust that I trust your integrity. You're not saying something and meaning something else. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it is possible for a person like the leper to come to Jesus and have faith in his ability to heal, but not believe in Jesus's authority or identity. Otherwise that's a theoretical possibility. I think it's highly unlikely though. I think it is much more likely the reason why he trusts Jesus can heal him is because he trusts something bigger. He has faith in something more about who Jesus is. If the leper heard the Sermon on the Mount, it's highly likely that he just has. Mm -hmm. Then he's just heard Jesus teach about the good news of the kingdom. Jesus has said incredible things like he fulfills the law and he is the one at the entryway to the kingdom of heaven who can turn people away should he choose to do so. And so uh, it's entirely likely that the the leper understands something about Jesus and entry to the kingdom, and he has faith in that. Of course, the leper can't know at this point that Jesus would die on a cross to take away his sins, mm. but nonetheless, he displays great faith in Jesus, and the scripture says that's what counts. Um, Paul said to the Philippian jailer, 
believe, have faith in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. That, that's what saves you from the condemnation of God. Um, I'd also just add the example of um, the criminal on the cross with mm. Jesus. I, I think that gives us a basis to say the leper had saving faith. The, the thief on the cross, all he says is, um, don't you fear God to the other criminal? Um, we're being punished justly. This man's done nothing wrong. And Jesus says to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. He had saving faith. And so I think if, you know, the leper got hit by that proverbial bus, an ancient chariot squashed him or whatever their equivalent is, um, you know, if he died shortly after this healing, I think we can say his status before God was the same as that criminal. He, he, had, he had faith in Christ uh, and that is what would save him from his sins. Okay. Interestingly, um, one of the other Gospels, um, Mark's Gospel, mm. I think, says that this man didn't obey what Jesus said though. Yeah, yeah. So he, Jesus said, don't tell anyone, um, just go straight and go straight to the temple. And he did tell everyone yeah, that's and right. kind of disrupted Jesus' ministry. So what's your take on that? Well, I mean, we have to be able to say, right, that uh, disobeying Jesus at points does not make uh, faith something that can't save us. I, yeah, I sure exactly. hope that for myself. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I think, you know, he was wrong. He did disobey Jesus at that point. Um, but I don't think it takes away from what I've said about his his faith being sincere and genuine. I do think he has a great faith mm. uh, despite him uh, not listening to what Jesus told him to do about that particular thing. Yeah. yeah. I guess he was taking a pretty big risk as well being a known leper mm. with his skin condition being among a crowd. Like it's yeah. pretty bold considering the cultural context of the time where he really shouldn't have been there. Mm, um, mm. But he's like pressing up against people like yeah. in, in that crowd. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, so he's there. I guess that's more evidence for his faith. He's stepping out, mm. um, like taking a risk um, to, in order to have an encounter with Jesus. Okay. Um. So the next question we have is back to the storms um, and the storm that Jesus calmed in the passage that we talked about on Sunday. If Jesus doesn't calm the storms in our life, does that mean we have little faith as well? I think some people might make dangerous conclusions about hard times and someone's level of faith using this passage. Mm. I, I really appreciate the concern of this question, because I think that is something, a connection we do need to avoid. I can see how the passage might be used that way, but I think it would certainly be a mistake. Jesus, of course, in the story calms the storm, even though the disciples have a little amount of faith. Mm. His help was not dependent on them having uh, enough faith in that moment. He wants them to have bold, courageous, fearless faith, mm. um, but that didn't stop him calming the storm for them. So if we were going to draw a connection between faith and Jesus helping us during storms, the point of this story, if there is any, uh, would be to conclude that even when our faith is small, calling on him to help is the right thing to do, mm -hmm. and he's willing to do so. Um, faith in Christ for salvation is effective, of course, whether it's small or large. But faith can uh, vary in its amount. It can be strong or weak. And there's no correlation between that, between faith being strong and God taking difficulty away from our lives. Mm. We have to believe that the storms of life can have a redemptive purpose. And um, as hard as it can be to swallow sometimes, uh, there can be good out of those things. Um, in the same way that you don't build resilient children by coddling them from everything tough in life, 
God doesn't build mature, faithful disciples by taking away every difficulty in our life. Mm. Um, in fact, um, Paul in Romans 5 is able to say, we rejoice in sufferings. We rejoice in sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, which produces character, which produces hope, which doesn't disappoint. Um, and we have many examples of people in the Bible with, with a very strong faith who request that God would take away a particular storm uh, and God does not. Mm. And so I think the message to the person in the midst of a storm is not God would take this away if you had more faith. Mm. Um, that's wrong. Uh, the, the message is your struggles are not a sign that God is unhappy with your level of faith. Yeah, it's less about the quality of your faith in terms of its amount and mm. more about who you put your faith in. Yeah, well said. Yeah. yeah. And I think as well, like it's interesting to note that Jesus healed demon-possessed people who didn't have an expression of faith. Would that be right? That's a good question, yeah. Uh, I think we have to say so. Like whatever um, whatever their mental capacity is in that point, it's hard, it's, it's hard to know. Yeah. So is faith an... A necessary part of healing. Yeah, I see where you're going here. Yeah, I, I, I think we have to say no. Like, there's a sense in which God uh, can reach out to us before the fact of faith. And in, 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 I mean, the scriptures teach in terms of salvation, He has to, right? We're, we're dead in our sins. We can't make ourselves alive. We need Him to regenerate us mm, mm. Um, for, for faith to, to take place. And so, yeah, it is God's initiative in that sense. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess like Jesus did raise people from the dead yeah. in his yeah. <laughs> in his healings as well. And yes. so that perhaps the people around them had faith, yeah. but yeah. that person themselves yeah. had no capacity yeah. for faith. Unless a retrospective faith, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, but we don't necessarily know those details, I suppose. Yeah, it just, I mean, this all just goes to say it cannot be as simple as more faith means more easy life. <laughs> it's, yeah. just, it's just not biblical at all. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes. I mean, Jesus had the most faith in, mm. in the sense and he mm. suffered incredible hardship in his exactly. own life. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. We're going to continue on the theme of sort of suffering in our life um, as we continue our questions. The next question is about demons. Um, is it loving for God to allow demons to ruin people's lives when he could easily destroy demons? This is an excellent question. Because it is the hardest question in the world. Yeah. <laughs> um, this this is a deep question. I mean, we could change it slightly, right? Is it loving for God to allow tsunamis to ruin people's lives when he could stop them? Is it loving for God to allow cancer to ruin people's lives when he could stop that? This is a classic example of the problem of evil. That's mm. really what we're asking here. It's one of the most thought about and most important questions that the world has ever asked. Um let me try to give a, a not too long response. Um, in the case of a demon, God is not the direct cause of someone's suffering. The demon is the one that is hurting them. Mm -hmm. But we would say, wouldn't we, that a person who has the ability to stop some kind of suffering and has no good reason not to step in and stop that suffering, if they choose to not help, we would say that person is less good than the person who does step in and help. And so we're left with the question based on what we believe about God, uh, why does he not prevent more suffering in the world? Mm. There's a lot of it. Why does he not step in more often? Um, 
That's different to the personal question of suffering, which is why is God allowing this particular thing to happen to me right now? That is a different question, worth asking, important question. But just to be clear, that's not the question I'm asking here. I'm asking the abstract philosophical question. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the key to the answer lies in us thinking about whether or not God could possibly have sufficient reasons for allowing, permitting suffering that are not knowable to us. Mm -hmm. That is really the key to the issue. And theologians, philosophers, whether they're Christian or not, have realized that that's where our answer kind of has to lie. Now, I'm not saying that, oh, it's all just a mystery, right? I'm not just throwing up my hands and saying, this is too hard. We have to lean into mystery. Um, Because... The, the scriptures actually do say stuff about the topic and encourage us to think hard into the topic and to seek for answers to that reason. Um, so just because evil may appear pointless to us, it doesn't mean that God could not have a good reason for allowing it. And there have been many possible reasons given by theologians in, in, in that little spot in the question. In any given case, uh, the possession of a demon, for example, why does God not intervene? When we, when we cannot see any potential good that is resulting out of the suffering, why does he not intervene? The short answer is I don't know mm. because I'm not God. Um, I do know that the Bible encourages us to cry out to God, how long will you allow this to go on? I do know that God is able to, in his plans, bring about good that we cannot even see from the most horrible kinds of evil. I do know that God is aware of what our intensest suffering feels like because he stepped into the world and suffered it himself. Mm. And I know that our world is in a state of general rebellion against God. And so any any suffering that he does prevent for us is in fact a kindness that we don't deserve. None of those is a truly satisfying answer, I don't think. Mm. Like I said, I think this is the biggest question there is. Yeah. Uh, but they are part of the answer given to us. And I'm convinced, I'm convinced that the Christian faith does give us the best resources for understanding evil and suffering and demons uh, and for handling those things, for experiencing those things. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, that's really helpful and, and really clear. The only thing I would really add is just going back to the is it loving for God to allow demons to ruin people's lives or as mm. you've broadened the question, is mm. it loving for God to allow suffering in general? Um, the re- You sort of said we don't know the reason for the suffering necessarily but I think we can pretty conclusively say that it's not because God is not loving mm. because of um, Jesus entering into our suffering in yeah. order to rescue us. Yeah, that's right. And I know that in times where I have been suffering and crying out to God and angry with God, it was that it was that fact of Jesus entering into our suffering that diffused my anger in a mm. sense because I thought, well, I know that it's not because you don't care. There's another reason that yeah. I'm I'm struggling to grasp right now. But we know that God is loving. The evidence is all through Scripture, but particularly focused in on what Jesus did for us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, going back as well to like drill into the question of demons today. Um, so the person asks in this same question we've been talking about, is it loving for God to allow demons to ruin people's lives? I'm just curious, Andrew, what you think about how often demon possessions happen today? 
Yeah, I um, I did address this a bit in my sermon. Um, I think it does happen in the world today. And part of why we ask this question from our context is that we are just a bit unaware of what's going on in the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. So we have to recognise that when we say demon possession doesn't happen very often, we, we have a very cultural narrow perspective when mm-hmm. we say that. In most parts of the world, it's completely expected and normal and evidenced. Um, and so, you know, I, I mentioned the other day that I've done a bit of research in African contexts and what evangelism and spirituality looks like there. Um, who am I to doubt the countless, countless examples of witch doctors engaging with spirits mm. and things like that? The, the evidence to me seems fairly overwhelming, not mm-hmm. just some kind of wishful thinking about there being a spirit world. Uh, and so I, I do think these things happen. Um, I would say theologically that those indwelt by the Holy Spirit cannot be possessed by a demon. Um, I think that is is true. Uh, and so for Christians, you know, in a Christian community, how often should we expect demon mm. possession to be happening? Not very often at all <laughs> amongst those who are saved. Demon oppression, on the other hand, the attacks of the devil, his schemes working against us, very common. Yeah. Um, and for me, the, the most satisfying answer in terms of, well, why don't we see more of this oppression, uh, possession happening in our context? Partly is it's actually not that common in the Bible. It becomes common when Jesus is walking around. Mm. And I think there's something there in the spiritual forces kind of rising up against him as he arrives. Um, but also I would say that I think, uh, as Lewis says, the, the effective strategy of the devil in a Western context is that steady chipping away at faith. Are there really spiritual forces in the world? Is God real? Um, It's that disbelief in the devil that is his most effective way of getting at people. So Mm. that's a roundabout way of saying I I think we ought to expect it to not happen very often in our contexts. Mm. Yeah, Yeah, it's interesting. I love that C.S. Lewis quote and it reminds me of the book that he wrote, um, The Screwtape Letters. Such a good book. Where he he kind of has this imaginative like conception of perhaps how – demons work mm. in in the west yeah. was sort of in the mid um 20th century yeah. um but i think a lot of that we can still really resonate with today mm. when mm. we can sort of see perhaps this is how spiritual warfare is at work obviously yeah. not literally <laughs> yeah. but um it's it's fascinating and um really encourages us, I think, to um, to brush up on the resources that God has given us um, in the spiritual fight Yeah. per Ephesians 6. Yeah, exa- I think too many of us don't believe Ephesians 6. We don't yeah. think, you know, it's important to put on your spiritual armour every day. And it is. Like Jesus took the attacks of the devil seriously and uh, we ought to take it a little more seriously than we do, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks. All right, so the next question is actually our last question. Um, and I think it's it's helpful to emphasise what you said about um, demon possession might not be very um, uh, common in, in our context. Um, I think that's really relevant to the discussion um, that we might have now. Um, so the question is, I see from Andrew's example that Jesus and the Bible distinguishes between epilepsy and demon possession does it do so for other mental illnesses like schizophrenia, psychosis, depression? Are there specific examples of this? Um, so I did a little digging. Thank you for this question. Um, as far as I can see, the Bible 
doesn't speak about those other conditions using the terms that we would use today. I mean, it doesn't use the English word epilepsy, but there's an, a, an equivalent for that condition um, in the Greek lexicon. Um, it does, though, the Bible does describe the corruption of our bodies, and that includes the disordering of our mind and sicknesses that affect that too. So taking schizophrenia, for, an ex- for example, um, characterized by disorganized thinking, paranoia, um, delusions, things like that, that's never explicitly mentioned or described anywhere in particular in the Bible, but we have things close to it. Um, you know, examples like King Nebuchadnezzar, who experiences significant madness that is obviously something affecting his mind and his spirit uh, in a serious way. Uh, there are examples of serious depression amongst people in the Bible. Uh, King David in some of the Psalms, Job throughout the book of Job, Elijah points in his ministry. Um, Jonah, towards the end of the book of Jonah. Um, There are examples of anxiety. So people who um, have very acute worries in the Bible. But of course, in every one of those cases, um, depressed mood is not the same as clinical depression or major depressive disorder. Um, In the same way, anxiety is not the same as generalized anxiety disorder. And we just aren't told enough in the pages Mm -hmm. of scripture for us to, to make any sort of conclusion about whether those people had medical conditions that we describe today with those words. Perhaps the closest example I can think of is actually Jeremiah. Um, He writes in parts uh, of of Jeremiah about deep and extended periods of very intense melancholy Mm -hmm. to the point where I don't think we're going too far to describe his language as borderline suicidal Mm -hmm. at points. Um, But, of course, even there, we can't say with any sort of confidence whether he has a clinical condition that is being exacerbated by his circumstances or whether his his depressive mood is what any average person would experience in those circumstances. Mm. And so, yeah, that's that's as far as I can see in terms of the Bible describing um, medical illness, uh, mental illness, I should say, what we see. Um, In the end, uh, I would say the Christian faith gives us true hope of an end to those illnesses uh, and is good news for those who suffer from such things. Mm, Yeah, definitely. Um, I guess as well the question sort of asking about um, whether demon possession is a part of mental illness um, in the Bible or whether there's always a delineation between the two. Yeah, yeah, I didn't quite address that, did I? Thank you. Um, I... I want to cling to what I said on Sunday that the Bible by default differentiates those things. It it does not ever just lump it all into the category of demon possession. Um, But of course, what, what does demon possession look like in the Bible? Um, It, it has symptoms that overlap with other mental illnesses we would describe today. And so unless we were God and could peer into the true spiritual condition of a heart, we, we can't really know just by looking at a person, um, you know, how much of it is the result of spiritual influences, how much of it is physiological. That's where expert diagnosis comes into things. And so basically what I'm saying is um, we should assume uh, that demon possession is not the cause of mental illness far and away, um, but we shouldn't rule out that there could be spiritual factors at play. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think you said on Sunday as well, if we just assume that it's all spiritual, we're going to not 
um, get treated, mm. um, the medical treatment that we actually need yeah. for that disorder. Yeah. Um, and uh, I was doing a little bit of research about schizophrenia because um, I think that um, some of the symptoms of schizophrenia is what people kind of think about when they think demon mm. possession um, probably very unfairly, yeah. I would say. Yeah. Um, yeah, but uh, in schizophrenia there's also genetic components and brain differences yeah. and neurobiological, um, the, the chemistry of the brain as well. Yeah. There's differences there. There's actually physical, uh, there's a physical illness behind the, the manifestation of those behaviours that we see yeah. in someone with schizophrenia. So if you were to say that someone schizophrenia or that's demon possession and I've heard Christians say that um, Mm. in more than one context Mm. Um, I think that's really dangerous because because there is that um, neurochemical dimension to schizophrenia medication is a really important part of treatment Absolutely. So I think the own, I think, and I think that can be a differential diagnosis I guess if you're (laughs) looking at demon possession versus schizophrenia if the meds work then it's not demon yeah, possession. Yeah, that's right, yeah. I um, mean, what are the symptoms we see? It's, you know, uh, inhuman strength often and spiritual insight, you know. In demon possession, that's, yeah. That's not any schizophrenia very, I've ever heard they're of. They're yeah. very, um, the demons are very articulate. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah They yeah. know what they're yeah. saying. Um, yeah. Whereas, yeah, in, and I'm not an expert by any stretch of the imagination, but what I have read on schizophrenia is that disordered thinking and that dis- disorganised speech where sometimes mm. it can be so disorganised it barely makes sense. Yeah. The demons did make a lot of sense yeah. when yeah. they were, well, particularly when they were talking to Jesus. Yeah. It's quite different. They made yeah. more sense than the disciples sometimes. Yeah. Can I just add one thing on mental health? There's yeah, please. A, um, if, if you're someone who's suffering with these kinds of things, a really excellent resource um, is the Mental Health and Pastoral Care Institute. Look yep. up the Mental Health and Pastoral Care Institute run by Keith and Sarah Condi who are lovely, wise Christian experts in this area. They have just started monthly seminars on particular mental health topics. Mm. So the next one in March is... I know is on um, adult ADHD. ADHD yeah. yeah, did you get their email about this? I, I did I because recently, I think yeah. I have adult ADHD. Right. Oh, excellent. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, so I'm so, like, oh, I'm gonna. Yeah. So they into run these. One. They run mm. these seminars that are just starting up, and they are mental health professionals, real experts, mm. but with a particular emphasis on how church communities can be sorted, supporting right. people in these. So, I would highly re- recommend you look them up. Um, chances are, there's a seminar coming up this year that will. Mm. address an issue that um, you have a particular interest in. Yeah. I actually had the opportunity to um, learn from Keith Condi in the – I did a course on um, pastoral care for people with mental ill health and he was Mm. the lecturer and um, he's an excellent teacher. He's very wise, yeah. He was the dean of students at college when I was there. And we used to describe him as a verbal hug every time oh, he comes and talks yeah, to you. True. It's just the way he speaks to you. Just <laughs> you walk away, you start crying, and you feel like it's just the most cathartic experience you could imagine. A <laughs> conversation yeah. with Keith, very very pastoral man. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. do do use that resource. I think I think that's really that's really really helpful. Mm. Um, look, we've discussed some pretty tricky things, um, particularly in the last couple of questions. If something has upset you and you want to talk further about it, please please get in touch with us. Um, Don't suffer alone. Um, Yeah, have a chat to someone about it so that we can support you. Well, that wraps up um, our questions um, for today. So what are we going to talk about next Sunday? Oh, Nathan's preaching. It's the next part of Matthew, Matthew chapter 9. It includes the calling of Matthew uh, is in there and 
the healing of a paralytic, the down through the roof incident. Although oh. I, I can't remember if Matthew mentions the cutting open the roof part. I think he doesn't. You'll have to come along and find <laughs> out. See. Is there more contradictions <laughs> in the Bible? Mm, I guess we've covered that one off That's already. right. You'll know how to answer them when it comes up. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, that's right. All right. Thank you so much for your wisdom today, Andrew. And we hope to see everyone on Sunday. Thanks for listening to this episode. We'd love you to join us at Kellyville Anglican any Sunday at 8.30, 10.30 or 6pm. You can find out more information at www.ka.church. So come join us and see for yourself what is said on Sunday.